Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 98, and we're going to dive deep into a topic that should matter to every van lifer, and that is troubleshooting and how to do it. We're also going to talk about installing a Max Air fan, how it went for me, and some tips and tricks you might want to hear about, a product review of Flex Paste, no, we're not making a boat, and a tale involving a Japanese taxi. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks so much for letting me have a week off, and I hope some of you enjoyed that episode of Pantophobia. And uh, watch out for those fish out there. Stepping on them could be quite hazardous to your mental health. This time, I wanted to talk about troubleshooting. I talk about troubleshooting a lot on this show, and I talk about, like, if this happens, here's how you fix it. But I don't think I've ever talked about just the basic principles of troubleshooting that apply not only to van life, but to computers, to dishwashers, to just about any aspect of life. To me, troubleshooting is an offshoot of critical thinking, which is a field that I used to have some involvement with long ago. But troubleshooting is something I've been involved with since my very first jobs, where basically something was wrong and I had to figure out what it was. In fact, I've had many jobs where that was essentially my entire job. So I have a background in troubleshooting, and I've never actually thought about troubleshooting methodology or, or the principles of troubleshooting in any systemic way. I came to it all through experience. But it occurs to me that there is a systemic way to troubleshoot. In fact, it's an entire field of study, things that you can do to help you figure out what's wrong and how to fix it as soon as possible. So I thought I'd talk about a few of those here today, and hopefully some of you can pick up on some of these principles and use them to get you through whatever your next problem is in your van. The first thing you need to do is collect data, or data, or is that plural or singular? You can decide that for yourself, but you need to find out what exactly is the problem. Like, literally, the van won't start. Okay, that's a problem. But what data goes along with that? What do you know when you turn the key? Does anything click? Do any lights come on? Are there any sounds? Are there any smells? Is there anything dripping from the van? Whenever something like that happens, you should have a whole list of questions appear in your mind, and then you just go about and answer them. Because that data is going to inform your next step. For example, if you turn the key and nothing at all happens, well, you might have a missing battery. Someone may have stolen your starter battery. If you turn the key and the lights come on, you can eliminate that possibility because you know that there is a battery in there. It may not be fully charged, there may be some corrosion, there may be a broken wire, there's a whole bunch of other things, but you know not to focus on the things that can't be the source of the problem. Now, see, what I just did there was I applied my personal experience to a made-up problem, and the only way you can get there is to have experience. And this is why, if possible, you're going to be much more resilient if you build your own van. You're going to know how this stuff works. You have to, to install it. If you're afraid of wiring and figuring out what's wrong with wiring, well, wire something up yourself, and you'll quickly see that there's this principle of a circuit, which is a circle where positive goes and goes to the device, and then that goes to ground, and it just goes in a circle. 
that's DC wiring. Anyway, you, you figure that stuff out, and that knowledge is what you apply against the data, and that leads you to a solution. So gather the data, and then you can apply your experience to it in order to solve the problem. And the way you get there is to learn about these systems. But let's say you bought a van that's already built out. Well, how do you know how all that stuff works? I mean, this is the world I live in. I bought an ambulance, which can be thought of as a built-out van, and the manufacturer has no wiring schematics for me. And while some of the wires are nicely labeled, I have a giant bundle of about 40 wires that are labeled rear. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they go to, so it's a constant struggle for me to figure out, but I am learning as I go, and if you buy a built-out van, holy cow, have a very long conversation with the people who built it out if you can. I mean, when I sold my last van, my NV200 Pagurus, I spent hours with the new buyer hours. I showed her everything I possibly could. And I, I knew that it was just too much information. There's no way anybody could absorb all that information. So I also said, hey, here's my phone number. Call me if there are any problems. Try to get into a situation like that if you can. So one way you can get data and learn how things work is to have some tools that will help you. For engine problems, the best tool you can have these days is an engine scanner. I've talked about these a lot. An onboard diagnostics two scanner, OBD port scanner. I just installed a Bluetooth one, which I will review in a future episode and let you know how that goes. But honestly, you don't really need a super expensive one. The more money you spend on these, the more things you can do, like clear codes and get into modules that are vehicle specific. For example, Mercedes has codes that are only found in Mercedes and the higher end ones will read those. But really, for the basic big problems you're gonna have with your engine, a code scanner is going to tell you what they are. And you don't have to know anything about fixing them. This is the value here. The code scanner is going to give you a code, and then when you combine that with Google, you have a whole bunch of information. Now, it is tricky to decipher this. This is kind of like playing the Dr. Google game where you have some symptoms and you Google it and then you think you know as much as the doctor. Yeah, you don't, and you don't know as much as the mechanic either but it can certainly help you understand where the source of the problem is coming from, what you're likely facing, and as you get better at this, heck, some of the stuff you can just fix yourself. That was my case with the mass airflow sensor that went bad in my NV200. Using the code scanner, I was able to see what it was, and then I did a little bit of Googling and a little bit of YouTubing, and I realized it was an easy part to replace. I just went to the auto parts shop and replaced it with a screwdriver, two screws, in, out, done. Now, if I'd gone to the mechanic, that would have been several hundred dollars more, and I would have had to have found a mechanic open on a holiday, which seems to be when my van breaks down. It's always on holiday for some reason. The other tool that you definitely want to have is a multimeter. Multimeters do 112 different things, probably more than that. <laughs> I'm probably not even exaggerating with that number. But the basic thing that you need them for is to tell voltage at certain points. That will tell you if something is getting power or not. And that is a huge, huge piece of diagnosing things in the van. Get a multimeter, doesn't have to be an expensive one, learn how it works. You don't have to learn how all of it works. I mean, these things can test for resistance, and there aren't too many cases where you're going to want to do that. You, you, there might be some. And they also will detect amperage, which might sound useful, but actually isn't because of the way you have to use them. But the voltage is great for telling you polarity 
and that you actually have a circuit. And geez, for 15 bucks, you can get a decent multimeter. Definitely learn how they work though. I can tell you in short, you're going to set it most of the time for DCV20, which is DC volts 20. That's the setting for checking your 12 volt system in your van. Get those two tools. Very important. Okay. So you've got your tools. You have your data. What do you do next? Well, you try to reproduce the problem. This is the most, most valuable thing. If you know that doing X causes Y, you are well on your way to solving the problem. In fact, much of the time I spend troubleshooting things is doing exactly that. What does what? And it's hard because when I push this button, it makes this noise. Okay, that's great, but that isn't how it often is. Sometimes it's when I push this button after the engine's warm and it's raining out, it makes this noise. And you can spend a lot of time trying to figure that out. Any of these things you have that only happen sometimes, they're called intermittent problems and they're a real pain. But there's still tricks you can use to overcome those. And one of those is to isolate the problem. Here's a classic example of this. In fact, I, I just helped somebody with this online last week faucet's not working. Well, let's figure out what kind of a faucet you have. In this case, they had a 12 volt submersible pump. That is, there was a, there's a pump sitting in their water and has two wires coming out of it. And you apply power to those wires and it pumps out water. For some reason, they were putting in a new switch and every time they put the new switch in, it blew a fuse. Well, fuses blow because there's a short circuit. There's too much heat at the fuse, basically. It means positive and negative are touching each other somewhere. So the very first thing you should do in a situation like this is to isolate the problem. And that, by that, I mean you want to make sure the pump works without the switch. So you would just wire the pump up directly. Just twist the wires together and make sure the pump works. And don't do anything until you do that. Once you know the pump works, you then know without a doubt that the problem is the switch. And then you can focus solely on the switch. Now, in this case, the switch had a light in it. Lighted switches have tricky wiring because the switches actually are an appliance as well as a switch. So just know that going in, if you get lighted switches, it adds complexity. And that leads us to the next point. If you build out your own van, you will quickly realize that the KISS principle, that is keep it simple, silly, is actually a pretty good thing in van life. Some people will not get the fancy Max Air fan with the remote control and all that because it adds complexity. Complexity means not only that things are more likely to break, it also means they're harder to troubleshoot. So having a simple vent, like you just crank open the vent and there's a little simple electric fan in there, you're never going to have a problem with that or very rarely. And if you do, well, there's very little that can go wrong. So you pretty much know how to fix it already. Max Air fans have computer chips in them. And the problem with computer chips is that unless you've got an oscilloscope and probing hardware, you can't really tell what's going on with it. So if your Max Air fan doesn't work, what's wrong with it? I don't know. <laughs> and then the last bit of troubleshooting I want to share with you is plan B. In van life, you can be troubleshooting things that are life essential. Forresty Forrest recently just broke down in the woods in his van, and if he didn't get that running, well, he had to hike a long way to get help, which <laughs> if anybody could do it, he could. But he was able to use simple troubleshooting methodology to figure out what the problem was. And one of the principles he did was he figured out that it was something that he had changed recently. <laughs> That's another principle. Look for what you have changed recently recently 
first because <laughs> that's where he had a problem. He had a fuse holder melting. At some point, troubleshooting turns into emergency repair. How do I solve the problem I need to solve? So your electric induction cooktop isn't working because your batteries didn't charge. Okay, well, why didn't your batteries charge? A bunch of different things that could be, but your real problem is how are you going to cook dinner? Focusing on that real problem at that moment is actually the thing to do. Don't worry about fixing the induction cooktop right then. Don't worry about the battery right then. Worry about how you're going to make dinner. And then this is the biggest lesson of troubleshooting, and this applies to many, many factors of life. Try to remove bias, and that is try to remove emotion from the equation. You might be really annoyed that you spent all this money putting in that induction cooktop and all this money on batteries, and you can't cook. I've had that experience in my van, not exactly, but I understand spending a lot of money on something and having it not work and being very frustrated at that. You have to put that aside as much as you can in order to fix the problem, because you won't even be able to identify the problem unless you can put that emotion aside. The problem in that scenario isn't that the induction cooktop doesn't work. The problem is that you can't make dinner. <laughs> so solve that. And then when things are neutral, go back and fix the other problems. That was a rather rambling description of troubleshooting, but I hope you got something out of it. Let me know if you have any questions, and let me know if you have any other ideas. If you know any acronyms or anything that can help people keep this stuff straight, I would love to hear about that. I'm Jeff at BuiltToGo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Tech Talk. Well, folks, I did it. I'm an official van lifer now because I installed a Max Air fan in my van. Now... It doesn't matter what kind of a fan you install. I, I'm going to tell you some things about installing a fan in your van that I kind of knew, but now that I've done it, I feel like I can actually talk about. Van roofs have places built into them for installing vents, usually. And the standard size vent for a van or an RV is 14 inches by 14 inches. They do make smaller ones now. I saw some 12 by 12s that I didn't buy. And they, of course, make smaller round ones. But nearly every fan you find, every vent you find for the roof of a van is going to be 14 by 14 square. And that actually includes air conditioners, too. RV air conditioners fit into a 14 by 14 hole. Now, van manufacturers know this, so they will usually put a flat piece of metal somewhere on the roof that is larger than 14 by 14, so you can cut it out. In the Sprinter van, on the roof of my high-top Sprinter van, it is right in the middle at the front of the roof. And there's a raised circle in the middle of it, and that is for an antenna. And that leads to my problem. I have an antenna there. The ambulance had radios in it, and there's an antenna sticking up there. Now, I could remove that antenna, and uh, because I'm not using it at the moment, although I may use it if I get a CB later, but I can't actually use that flat plate because, again, my ambulance is already built out, and there is lighting and molding all along the ceiling that would interfere with me putting the fan there. So I have two choices. I can either tear out the inside of the van and redo all the wiring and all the molding and all the structure there to use this space that was dictated for this. Or I can put the vent fan where I actually want it and deal with the consequences. 
Now, in my van, I have the cooktop by the passenger side slider. I like having it there. It means that I can kind of cook inside and outside if I have the door open. It's great for ventilation. And as it happened, there was a clear space in the ceiling right above that spot where a cabinet used to be that I took out. So it made perfect sense from the inside that that's where I should put my fan. In fact, I even had some wiring I could reuse up there. However, on the roof, haha. <laughs> This was a problem, and this is something I want you guys to realize when you're picking your fan placement. Roofs aren't flat, they have ridges, you have to compensate for those ridges with your install. You can buy templates that will fill in those ridges online, but that's only going to work for a standard location. Where I was putting this, right on the edge, right over basically the passenger seat, no one had anything for that there, because not only do I have to deal with being off-center on these crevices, I have to deal with the fact that the roof is slightly bent up there. It, it's slightly tilted to the side so that water will drain off. And my ambulance, being a high top, at some point in its life, somebody put it on a lift in a garage and hit the ceiling. My roof is actually somewhat dented. So I had a completely uneven surface to drill through and to put my max air fan in. So here's what I did, and here's what you can do. First thing I did was make sure I had a clear space that wasn't gonna cut through any beams. There are beams that go across the roof of the van, and they add a whole lot of strength to your entire van, not just the roof. It's what makes a unibody van strong. You don't wanna cut through those unless you absolutely have to. And if you have to, you'll live, but try not to. And then I had to make sure it was going to be waterproof. And the way I did that was to apply a whole lot of butyl tape. Butyl tape is the thing to use when you're installing anything on the roof. It's a putty-like tape. You can get it on Amazon, and you want to use a ton of it. It's really good stuff because it never hardens. It never gets brittle. It just kind of stays the way you leave it. And so far, I've never had it fail for me. But it has to go under the vent. You don't screw down the vent and then put this stuff over it. You have to put it underneath while you're installing it, like the instructions say. Yes, you can actually follow the instructions. But, see, that's not enough. You also need to seal that. Now, the best thing to do is to use Sikaflex or something like that, a marine sealant, a lap sealant, some sort of self-leveling sealant. But those things are really hard to find in stores, and you have to basically buy them online, like so many things these days. And I, well, I didn't have them, so I used Flex Paste. Not because I was swayed by the commercials so much as because it's the only thing like that that my hardware store sold. So... I'll have a review about FlexPace coming up later in the episode, but that's how I did it. And right now, my vent is exactly where I want it. It works fine, but I had to overcome a whole bunch of things. And I'm telling you this so that when you plan your fan placement, realize that you need to plan it from both the inside and the outside and have a way to compensate for all the nooks and crannies on the roof of your van. Tales from the Road. So way back in 2006, I had this amazing opportunity to go to Japan, Tokyo specifically, with James the Amazing Randy, who does seem to keep coming up here on the show. And uh, Randy had been invited to be on uh, a TV show where they were going to test somebody for psychic powers. And my role in this was just to be basically Randy's assistant. It was just someone to travel with Randy, to carry his bags, to do whatever. And 
boy, was I thrilled to be able to do that. <laughs> I mean, I got to go to Japan. It was awesome. But as you might expect, J Japanese culture is a little bit different than American culture. And there were several things that I had to learn. One was, well, you take your shoes off before you go inside. Now, living in Vermont, as I did at the time, I was pretty familiar with that concept, but I wasn't actually familiar with how it played out. Inside and outside were treated a little funny. We met with the TV producers in an office in a big building, and the hallways of the inside of this building were considered outside, but the offices were considered inside. So I had to continually kind of watch everybody to see if they took their shoes off or not. I was very careful not to enter a room first. <laughs> and I screwed up once, and uh, I walked into the room, and everybody burst out laughing, and I'm like, what is going on? And then I realized they were laughing because I'd left my shoes on, because that's hilarious, apparently. But I did something worse, and this was something that I had never heard of and was completely a foreign concept to me. We didn't rent a car. They drive on the English side of the road over there. And so we were using taxis, which was fine because everything we were doing was in Tokyo. Taxis in Tokyo are not like taxis in the U.S. They're very nice. The drivers are very professional. You can see they take really good care of their vehicles. And their doors are a little different. But, hey, I was a 40-something-year-old American. I'd been in cabs all my life. So I got to my destination and opened the door, and, which felt a little weird and then got out of the taxi and then slammed the door behind me. And the driver started screaming at me. And I'm like, what did I do wrong? All I did was open the door and close the door. I know he got paid. So, well, I, I've already told you what I did wrong. I opened the door and closed the door. You don't do that in taxis in Tokyo. At least you didn't in 2006. The drivers of the taxis there have a handle very much like an American school bus, and they open and close the door for you with that. So while in the U.S., if you had, say, a limo driver, they would get out of the vehicle, open and close the door for you. In Tokyo, they have a little piece of hardware that does that. But he wasn't mad at me because I didn't follow the rules. He was mad at me because when I slammed the door, that handle, if you can imagine a school bus handle, slammed into him because it's physically attached to the door. So I basically hurled this metal object at him at high speed and I felt terrible because I just, I just didn't get it. If you go to Tokyo, take a look at how the taxi is set up. It might be different now. It's been 15 years, but, uh, yeah, you know, sometimes things are different and sometimes we follow the customs of other countries, not so much to be polite, be but because it's actually practical. Product review. Let's talk about flex paste. I know, I know you have seen the commercials with this guy who does crazy things with flex seal and flex tape and flex paste and flex all this, blah, 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 blah. What the guy is selling is a liquid rubber product, an artificial rubber. And honestly, the stuff is actually pretty good. All the stuff he has done in those commercials, like taping a boat back together and stopping a leak in a water tank and all that, yeah, that's all real. You can actually do those things. And so when I couldn't find Sikaflex to finish my Max Air fan installed, I bought what looked like the closest thing, and that is Flex Paste. 
I bought two different kinds. I bought flex paste that came in a tube, like a caulking gun tube. And I bought flex paste that came in a tub, like a tub of wood filler or putty. These things aren't cheap. It was over $20 for those two things, just to let you know that you're not really saving money with this stuff. But it does have different characteristics than other things like silicone or latex caulk. It has the consistency of toothpaste. And if you touch it and pull your finger away, it will kind of make a string. So it's kind of messy to work with. But it's pretty good for a lot of van life applications. The flex paste in the tub, you can use a putty knife, and I just had a plastic putty knife, and build up areas with it. So my Mac Air fan sat on these ridges on the roof and there were these big gaps and I basically used the flex paste to fill those gaps and go all the way around the, the vent fan. And then I used the tube caulk version of flex paste to seal the screws and any little bits that I missed. And what I'm left with is it's a little messy looking but it is a bright white rubbery seal all around the vent. Now, how long is this going to last? I can't tell you that until I've had this thing for a few years. I can tell you that having used Flex Seal in the past, which is different, that comes in an aerosol can, it lasts about two years before you have to reapply it. And if this lasts two years, I'm totally fine with that. I do not expect sealants on the roof of the van to last forever. Although some things like a Turnabond, which is this incredibly heavy-duty rubbery tape, will last for a really long time. But it's hard to work with. So flex paste, I do believe is an option for sealing holes on the outside of your van, whether you're putting in a gland or you're putting in a fan or anything like that. It's probably a great little bit of emergency kit to have in the back of your van too. But it is expensive and the tub of flex paste is, it's a little weird. It has this foil lining inside it and you basically use it and then you put the foil back and you make sure the foil covers all the surface so that it won't dry out. So I'm not sure it's going to last very long. Cleanup, by the way, is hindered by water. You do not want to get this stuff wet. I just used a microfiber cloth that I sacrificed for this job. I was able to clean up everything with that. That worked really well. I was even able to clean up the putty knife with it. So I would recommend you sacrifice a microfiber cloth if you're going to use this stuff. At this point, I'm going to recommend Flex Paste for some things. It is not the best. It is not as good as Cicaflex. It is not as good as a Turnabond or anything like that. But it is much better than silicone or bathroom sealer or any of that kind of stuff you can get at Home Depot. If you're stuck with just buying stuff at a local store, Flex Paste might actually be your best option. A place to visit. I had the good fortune to visit Canada. I've, I've been there many times, but I was up in Nova Scotia, specifically on an island called Cape Breton. Cape Breton is part of Nova Scotia, but it's a, but it's its own island. It has its own culture. It's actually very Gaelic, and it's it's a lovely place. But it has a, a strange thing that you can visit up there, and I highly recommend this just just for the experience. It's a coal mine. Now the coal mine's long closed, but this coal mine is a little bit different than any other that I have visited. First off, it starts with a decent museum and it tells the history of the coal mine and how important it was to the region, etc. And then you actually get to go in the coal mine, which is nice. It's not just a demonstration of a coal mine. But when you get into the coal mine, you realize very quickly that the ceiling is only four feet high. So your entire visit in the coal mine 
is going to be in between 0 and 4 feet. And for those of you in low-top vans, well, you'll feel right at home. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. It, it felt very cramped at the time, but it wasn't until I had a low-top van that I realized how the miners put up with it, and that is that they simply didn't stand up. They were doing all their work from stools or kneeling, and that's what you do in a low-top van. So that experience was kind of interesting. Some of the people in our group couldn't handle it, uh, and they had to leave, because it is claustrophobic not being able to stand up, especially in a large room. This is a space that we have never been in before, most of us. I mean, imagine you're in a gymnasium, but the ceiling's only four feet high. It's a little bit disorienting. The other thing that I didn't tell you, <laughs> and one of the most amazing things about this mine is that it's not underground, it's underwater. The mine is under the seabed, so when you actually go into this mine, you're under the bay, and what's above you, if you were to drill up, is the ocean. <laughs> now, you don't really notice that while you're down there in any physical way, but mentally, it's not hard to consider that the entire weight of the ocean is above you. And uh, yeah, it would be a bad place to be if there was a leak. Now, they didn't actually have any leaks. They knew what they were doing when they engineered this place. And it's fascinating to see all the little things they did, where they cut coal, where they didn't. And little tidbit that I found fascinating, they had a garden down there. They had a garden that grew fresh vegetables in the middle of this mine where there was no light or not even soil. Now, there's a secret as to how they did this, and I'm not going to tell you because I want you to go visit this place. But that garden would not have existed except for how they moved the coal in and out. And just a little bit of Googling can give you the answer to that. So this place is called the Miner's Museum. It <laughs> doesn't have a very fancy name. And it's in Cape Breton, which is in Nova Scotia. I'll have a link in the show notes. But it's a beautiful place. They have a restaurant now, and, and I don't know what COVID's done to them. And, but now that the border, border's opening up, I think I'm going to focus on Canada a little bit because I'm really anxious to get back up there. This is a place that would be a fun trip to take if you were just on a van tour of Nova Scotia. And I really enjoyed it. It was one of those impactful places that has stuck with me. So again, that is the Miners Museum in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. Resource Recommendation I have talked about Gas Buddy in the past. Gas Buddy started as a website and then an app where people would simply report the gas prices around them. Like, I live in downtown Chicago, so there's probably 20 gas stations within a mile of me. I could drive around and say, okay, gas is $3.59 here, $3.79 here, $3.82 here, whatever the price is. And then other people could know and then make decisions based on that. Gas Buddy's been around for well over 10 years now and has grown significantly beyond that simple function. And honestly, I think everybody should have it because not only does it allow you to compare gas prices, it also allows you to find gas. And if you're traveling in rural areas, especially in a diesel, uh, that can be very useful information. But what I really want to talk about is the Gas Buddy card, which I just got. I want to be very clear. I am not affiliated with Gas Buddy. I am not advertising for them. They have paid me nothing. But I did get this card, and it works a little funny. This card is a discount card but you attach it to your bank account. And I've already turned off like most of you, but, but hear me out. When you go to the pump, first you go to the Gas Buddy app and you look for deals. And you will get discounts at certain gas stations so long as you use this Gas Buddy card, and they can be as much as 25 cents a gallon. 
Now, for my wife's Scion IQ that takes six gallons when we fill it up, it's not that big of a deal. But if you've got a 25-gallon Sprinter, that can add up to some serious money. But you can only get that discount with this card. And it works like a credit card, but it isn't. It's basically more like a debit card. So you put the card in, it adjusts the price, and it takes the money out of your bank account. I tried it. It works. I don't think it's insecure in any way, and I am going to keep trying it, and I'll let you know if anything bad happens. But I wanted to let you know that during this time of high gas prices, this thing could help you save some money, especially for those of you with big, old, low-cast mileage vans. Now, keep in mind that when you use this thing, you're not going to get any points. If you have a card, like I have the Amazon Visa card, which I really do like, I could rave about that all day, actually, you get lots of points back and you can use those to buy Amazon goods. You're not getting any points with this. You're just saving whatever money that you save on the card. But hey, if you can get 25 cents a gallon off, so you can save, you know, five or seven bucks on a tank. And if you're driving across the country, well, you know, I've, I've done three tankfuls in a day on some smaller vehicles. Yeah, it'll add up. That's the Gas Buddy card. I'll have a link in the show notes and you can check it out. So far, it seems to be something that might be worth having in this time of high gas prices. Well, folks, thanks for listening to this episode 98. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. Next week's episode is going to be recorded either on the ocean or in Mexico. And, well, we'll see what that turns out. It's going to be interesting. I do know that I'm going to the Hotel California, so I'll talk about that, I'm sure. Until next time, remember the words of Ben Aronovich. The problem with troubleshooting is that trouble shoots back.